Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Nick Leonard, Democratic candidate for the United States Senate in Minnesota. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're glad to have you. So Nick, you're the Our Revolution backed candidate in this race. Could you tell us about what pushed you to jump in and what your background is? Sure. Um, what pushed me to jump in was we had looking for opportunities to become more involved um, and be more than just an activist advocate, but actually serve the people of Minnesota. And um, after the 2016 election, uh, we were even more determined that we needed to be involved. Um, and then when a year later, Al Franken resigned and Tina Smith was appointed, we saw that we really needed to have a real true progressive uh, voice be heard in that race. And that's why we decided to run. I grew up in small town, Minnesota, kind of a farm com- farming community. The town is called Walnut Grove, which is kind of famous for Loringles Wilder being growing up there as a child, which is a little house on the prairie. Yeah, so it's a farming community. When I was graduated from there and I went on uh, to St. John's University in, uh, also in central Minnesota and studied environmental biology and environmental studies. My undergraduate work, I got a concentration on studying environmental impact of a wastewater treatment plant on a local campus lake. And then I went on to, from there, to the University of Minnesota Law School and started the environmental law clinic there and and began my career uh, in law, where I worked for some of the big iconic firms out of law school doing uh, patent law, actually. And since then, I've uh, had a law practice with where I've represented uh, civil rights cases and some small businesses. But I've also been a small business person as well and different types of businesses um, in New York, LA and here in Minneapolis. My entry into politics has been one where mostly on my activism side, where I've volunteered and been on many, many different boards as board of directors and as leadership positions. And so I think that was something that I've been passionate about my whole life, but it's never been a professional endeavor for myself until now. So could you give us some more details on your activism and how it's informed your perspective going into this race? Absolutely. Um, I think my activism really started out in college when I was at St. John's University, as a Catholic university, and I came out as a, a gay man in my sophomore year, and I had we were experiencing issues on campus, and I wrote a letter to the editor, and I kind of began my voice there, and um, I also was very active at the Green Team, which is our environmental organization on campus, and we were advocating for different areas of environmental activism, and since then, I've been involved in many different groups with marriage equality, calling knocking on doors, emailing, marching on Washington even. And um, most of my activism has been uh, with the environmental movement and with the LGBTQ and civil rights movement. So Tina Smith, the incumbent Democrat, is considered pretty solidly liberal. According to 538, she only votes with Donald Trump 25% of the time, which puts her in the top 20 most anti-Trump senators. What are your problems with her, and why do you not consider her the true progressive fighter that your state needs? There's many areas which we disagree on, but there's a couple, like three, I think, that are are really indicative. For instance, one in the environment. Uh, Tina Smith just proposed an amendment which will uh, support copper sulfide mining up near the Boundary Waters National Park in northern Minnesota, which really threatens our our clean water and our lakes. And I think I'm against that, of course, as an environmentalist. I think we differ greatly on that. Number two, money in politics. We are really committed to getting money out of politics. And Tina Smith has uh, been very involved in 
taking money from anyone and everyone at any levels that she'll take, she'll be able to get it. Um, we do not take corporate PAC money and we take, we're concentrating on small donations. And then finally, on healthcare, we are uh, supporting single payer Medicare for all and she is not. So those are three areas where I, I think we're very different on. Could you tell us more about your platform and the progressive priorities you're pushing for that you currently don't see generally liberal Democrats advocating for yet? Yes. Um, I think I'm glad to see that some are coming around, but uh, mostly we are looking for making sure the economy works for everyone. And that includes you know, moving this, the minimum wage and increasing it in up to a $15 minimum wage. And we also are making sure that education is accessible to everyone, uh, regardless of their income. So we support getting free tuition for public universities and trade schools and supporting apprenticeship programs and expanding Pell Grants and work study. Also, I think it's a, we need to expand debt forgiveness programs and create new ones designed to end the student debt crisis. And I think a, a lot of the traditionally liberal senators are not going that far with that regard. Another thing is that because we're able to get, we're, we're working on getting money out of politics, you know, I'm also confident that we'll be able to, if we can continue this movement, we'll be able to get common sense gun safety laws, because I think a lot of the money in politics is, is stopping that from happening. Your seat was vacated after Al Franken resigned because of stories revealing that he had sexually assaulted multiple women. Since then, we have seen even more members of Congress resign or choose not to run for re-election because of stories that are part of the Me Too movement. We haven't seen either chamber of Congress actually take much action regarding this, let alone the sexual assaulter who sits in the Oval Office. What would you do as a United States Senator to support women and support the Me Too movement? I think it's a very good question. I think this is one of the problems that we're all seeing in Congress is that they're saying things, but then not actually doing anything. And that's one of the areas where I believe that we like, we can't just complain, we have to do something. And that's where I believe that we need to enact um, legislation that makes it, especially with the current legislators, that it makes it easier to file a complaint and follow through on the complaints and to have actual consequences for those when it, when it is found that there is sexual harassment or misconduct on, the, on those areas. Right now it's set up where it's very difficult to bring those, any kind of action in that regard. I think that's the first thing that needs to happen is just to change the laws around the actual legislative body. A big role of the Senate, one that hasn't really received much attention under Trump, is judicial confirmations. Now, very notably under Obama, the Republicans refused to seat or even give hearings to his Supreme Court nominee, Merrick Garland, so that they could put in their own far-right nominee once Trump got into office. And since Republicans also held up so many judicial confirmations, Trump has been able to seat these very unqualified far-right nominees who are quite young, which means they'll be in lifetime appointments and their decisions will affect the country for decades. What are your thoughts on this and the fact that Democrats have largely voted to confirm his nominees? To say I'm disappointed is, uh, you know, understatement. But I think the first thing we need to do is win back the Senate and win back the House. The Democrats need to get out and vote. And that's the biggest thing. So we can actually have power and numbers to block these appointments as the Republicans did so effectively under Obama administration. So that's number one, we need to get out and vote and get a change in leadership. So that's number one. But number two, I think it's important to, and it has been done to some degree, but it's important to be 
active as a senator and really point out some of these areas where the candidates are, which I believe, lacking judicial temperament on some of these issues. I think as someone who is LGBTQ, for instance, um, it always helps when someone who is represents the group is able to speak uh, directly to those issues. I think it's harder for people to belittle the the concerns of the community when you're speaking to someone of this community. So that's why I think it's important that we have a diverse representation and have that representation speak out for the concerns, especially of their community. So could you tell us a little more about the state of LGBTQ rights in America? There's this very common misconception that there are already federal protections for LGBTQ Americans, while in reality, in most states, you can still be fired from your job for being LGBTQ. What is going on on a federal level, on a state level, on a local level, and how are those things connected? Sure, I think this is a very important question that I think there is a, a miscommunication on this issue because I've heard a lot of, especially at this, we just had our DFL convention and a lot of people saying, well, LGBT rights are kind of taken care of because of the marriage uh, decision, the marriage equality decision. And, and I think that's not true at all. In fact, we're under more attack now after that decision. Here in Minnesota, in fact, there is a religious exception to our human rights laws where if you're a a Catholic school, for instance, you can get married on Saturday and fired on Monday, and, and it has happened. I've uh, handled the clients who have been fired because of it, and it's very hard to to really prove. Uh, so it's there's some real issues, and if we, in, in terms of the federal level, we can pass civil rights and amend the civil rights amendment to include sexual orientation to be part of, and, in, and even beyond sexual orientation, but sexual identity and to be included in those protections that are already existing, but but they are not right now being protected. And we've seen this across the states. That are, And it's also a problem because there's inconsistencies across the states. Our community isn't necessarily feeling that safe to be able to tra travel state to state because we don't really know what would happen. There's several states that are enacting ad adoption bans, for instance. Uh, I know that would be a concern for someone in my state, if we adopted a child, if we went and moved to another state, would they be able to take that child away? So there's a lot of issues that are unresolved. Um, and, and we've made some progress where I, I, I you know, when I uh, graduated from high school and we had the, the first Gulf War and I was, you know, one of the things that we were looking at at the draft and it was illegal for me to enter the, into the military at that point. Where we have made some progress, but we still are str struggling with everyone being accepted into the military. And that's just the baseline, you know, for the federal government. So we definitely have to make sure that we aren't complacent on this issue and feel like it's done because there's a very organized and passionate agenda on the religious right to try to restrict our rights. If elected, you would be the first openly gay man to serve in the United States Senate. What would you do to stay connected to the activist community and ensure that they're not left behind? Good question. Um, well, I can't imagine myself ever leaving the activist community to a certain degree um, because that's who I am. I, uh, that's my community. That's where I grew up. That's literally been um, a big part of my life and is currently part of my life. You know, I'm married, there's a lot of my friends are also of that community and I would feel honored and obligated as, as well as part of the community to make sure that um, I'd be active, actively standing up for the rights of the, our community. So I'd like to get 
into the details of high priority progressive policies. Since Bernie Sanders' campaign, a big focus in the Democratic Party has been on economic inequality. What are your plans to combat that? Sure. I think this is a really big, important issue that we have to move the economy to be more inclusive and not concentrating on the millionaires and billionaires. I think we need to raise wages. And one of the uh, ways we raise wages is raise the minimum wage federally. Uh, the second way is we need to support and protect our unions because unions, unionization, labor organizations and are a big way to make sure that um, wages are at a higher rate. Another area is making sure that we have equal access to education and apprenticeship programs because this will enable everyone to be able to move up in the world and have access to good paying jobs. One of the other issues that I think will help in this area is getting healthcare to a single payer system because when you have healthcare um, and you're not relying on healthcare for your job, you're going to have more freedom to work and you're going to have more security and more income available to really participate equally in the world. So I think those are some issues that are, are high priorities for me to get done to make sure that everyone has equal access. So along these lines, The Nation recently published a really good piece about the false dynamic between populism and identity, because ever since Trump's non-popular vote victory, there's been this debate where a lot of centrists, almost all of them white, say we should kind of ignore racial justice and ignore civil rights so that we can win over Trump voters, while more progressives, people of color within the party have been saying that we need to still focus on racial justice and combine that with economic justice. And basically what this study finds is that the most effective thing for all voters is to link the race class narrative, to not ignore race. And that is actually how you do win over those voters who trend conservative. What are your thoughts on this dynamic and how are you incorporating racial justice into your platform and messaging? So so one of the important things that we are advocating for is to uh, make sure that we are ending institutional racism in our criminal justice system, for one. I think there's a big problem with the way that a lot of petty drug laws are enforced. Lots of stops and are much higher on communities of color. And I think and those are big issues that are going to affect people's ability to participate in the economy. So I think those that, that is one area we really want to concentrate on. Um, another one is, you know, we want to make sure that there's not any voter suppression to make sure everyone has access to the to the polls and make sure that everyone feels included in being able to vote. Uh, we've seen repeatedly that when people of color are motivated to go out and voice their votes, they are able to make significant change. Um, I think even in the, the Alabama election just last, the special election for the Senate, uh, the big factor that that enabled a Democrat to win was the incredible support and turnout of people of color. So I think we definitely need to make sure we're embracing all people, especially people of color. Another thing is that we need to work on and make sure we're as going after is protecting DACA and um, providing a clear, short pathway to citizenship. That's one of the areas that I felt that Tina Smith kind of let us down and when they um, 
had the vote in this last budget is that they didn't, you know, they shut down the government for, I think, a weekend, but they didn't really hold out and use that bargaining chip effectively to really get some things passed. And that one of those things was DACA. It's a mistake to not reach out and embrace the communities of color because there's a significant amount of power for change if those uh, communities are embraced and, and spoken to. I'm glad you brought up the DACA fight because I think it gets to a very fundamental problem with the Democratic Party, which is that the right often defines the narrative and defines how we discuss these issues. For decades, Democrats have been funding ICE and CBP, which were founded in 2003, which basically serves as this detention and deportation machine that targets immigrants of color and obviously especially undocumented immigrants and even documented people of color. The DREAM Act has definitely been a priority for progressives for a long time, but something I think a lot of folks don't realize is that the DREAM Act only covers about 30% of the undocumented population, meaning that the vast majority of undocumented Americans would still not have a pathway to citizenship. Now, I think that there's been this false enforcement plus naturalization dynamic that doesn't address the fact that much of our immigration system is rooted in policies, judicial decisions, and ideologies that originated in the era of Chinese exclusion. And that's why folks like myself are voting for a more comprehensive DREAM Act that addresses all undocumented Americans, as well as the abolition of ICE and CBP. Are these things you support? Um, these are definitely some things that I would be in support of. Uh, I'd have to uh, look specifically at exactly how they were going to be enacted. But I think we definitely see a problem where communities of color are being targeted by these organizations uh, enforcement uh, agencies disproportionately and that's a problem for me what that does is it is it only not only affects our undocumented people but it also affects our our citizens and and it's a negative racial stereotyping and negative oppression that happens as a that goes hand in hand and that is a really terrible and oppressive thing that's going on in our, in our nation and it's really sad because we see it enacted all the time and it permeates into the other law enforcement agencies as well so i think we it's something that we should definitely look at i'm really concerned about uh, the in, disparate impact of its of their enforcement as well a few weeks back we had data for progress co-founder sean mcelwee on the podcast and he talked about how there's this problem where far-right ideas get embraced but ideas that are considered progressive but still have bipartisan appeal. Now, some of these were a federal job guarantee, a $15 minimum wage, Medicare for all, universal basic income. You've discussed some of these already. These are targeted to help ease poverty, help stop income inequality. Could you tell us about your thoughts on these ideas and how you would aim to implement them? Well, I think you, there is a very large growing acceptance a lot of these programs what's happening is we need to get more money out of politics and i think when there's big money in politics and there's special interests that are able to make undue influence that are typically those special interests are getting lots of money because these programs are not in place making an effort to elective people who are trying to get money out of politics is one of those things another one is to educate 
legislators on these issues. We have seen that a lot of these programs work around the world. It's important that we point out that a lot of the so-called Trump voters who were in a lower economic station would actually support these <laughs> would support these initiatives when they're given all the information about them. So a lot of it's in, is educating um, the public, educating legislators, and really making sure that people are voting their interest. And uh, part of that is being active on trying to vote for politicians who are saying they're going to do it and actually have the ability to do it by not having taken a bunch of money from people whose interests will not support that. So lastly, if folks are inspired by your campaign, they want to get involved, they want to learn more, where can they find you online? Sure. You can find us at uh, nickleonardforsenate.com or at, on Facebook and Instagram. You can go at nickleonardforsenate or on Twitter at nickleonardmn from Minnesota. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, of course. So again, I'm Jordan Valerie, politics editor at Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co. And stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.